everyone, and welcome to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Janet Gardner, here as always with my colleague Dana Spears. Hello. We are back this month with another very exciting episode for you. On this episode, we are lucky enough to be joined by our colleague, CAR Senior Counsel Robert Bloom. He is going to help us understand some of the most common questions we get from realtors about trees, fences, and other tricky neighbor issues. We have a lot to cover with Robert, so let's get right to it. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Robert, it's so good to have you with us. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's been so long since I was on this this podcast. So really glad to be here. Yes. Well, we really appreciate having you here today to talk about this very important topic that realtors run into so often. I mean, just in their everyday lives, as well as in the course of their transactions. And so why don't we just jump in with an example of one of the most common questions we get uh, when it deals with neighbor type issues, which is, Say I have a shared driveway with my neighbor, and I recently found out that the entire driveway sits on my property. Can I prevent my neighbor from using the driveway? Right. That's a really common question. And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> of, so, course. <laughs> of course. So this is a possible example of what is known as a prescriptive easement. And that's basically the right to use the property of another person, and it's established by prior use. So depending on how long and in what way the neighbor has used the driveway, then that neighbor may very well have a continuing right to use the driveway based on having established a prescriptive easement. So how do you know if the neighbor has established this right? Yes, so basically there's these required factual elements. So in order to establish an easement by prescription, you have to show that number one, the easement was used continuously for a period of five years. And number two, that it was used in a manner that was open, notorious, clearly visible to the owner, and quote, hostile and adverse to the owner. So in this case of the shared driveway, if the neighbor was using the property for let's say 10 years, then it is very likely that they have established a prescriptive easement. Mm So what if the neighbor had only been using the property for four years instead of 10 in our example, Mm -hmm. then how would you stop them from establishing and acquiring this easement, right? Right. Okay. So you have this neighbor, you find out in the fourth year that, that that property is yours and that this neighbor really has no right to use it. So in order to sort of break the string of five years, you have, you can, one thing you can do is you can revoke permission and, or you can grant permission, I should say. So one thing that people do is they post a sign permission to pass revocable at any time. And this sign, this sign, posting the sign on your property, it's not necessarily conclusive. You may also have to record a corresponding notice on title. So, I mean, I would say that if you like actually put up a fence and stop the neighbor from coming on, and then negotiate for the neighbor to use the driveway with the sign, that would probably do it. And um, another example of this revocable permission is when sometimes when you're walking down the sidewalk, you may look down and 
you see a metal plate in the sidewalk and it says something like permission to pass over revocable at any time. Have you mm -hmm. noticed? Yeah. And you wonder, wow, that's odd. Why did they put that? Well, you probably don't wonder why that's there, but <laughs> the answer is whoever is that business, what they're seeking to do is they're seeking to avoid creating a prescriptive easement. So they post this sign and that negates the hostile and adverse uh, element because now you've given them permission and they probably also recorded uh, that notice on title as well. Mm. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. This next question is a little more complicated and pertains to a fence, but it's a question that does come up occasionally on the hotline. So they'll state, for example, when I bought my property 10 years ago, I believed that the fence sat on the boundary line, but I've since determined that the fence is actually five feet from the boundary line on my side. The total amount of my property that lies on the other side of the fence is nearly 500 square feet. Now my neighbor is claiming that they have a right by prescriptive easement, which we've been talking about, to use that property because it's been more than five years since the fence was built and they've been using it the whole time. Is that correct? Um, <clears throat> is it correct that they have a prescriptive easement? Well, um, mm -hmm. the answer is maybe. <laughs> um, well, uh, this one is even more complicated than the, the last one and the, uh, and the answer is actually gonna be a lot even hazier. Um, but this also, in, this does involve a prescriptive easement issue, but it also involves another type of neighbor issue called, which we call encroachment. And, and the question is whether that fenced area Fencing that area, is that legally different from the shared driveway example? And, and one difference is that judges are loath to just give someone a whole bunch of property just because they built a fence. So they're finding, they often find ways to avoid doing that. And presently, the main way of denying a prescriptive easement just because you built the fence is to, is to say, well, this area is exclusively used by the non-owner, by the neighbor. And if you're exclusively using this, this area, you cannot create a prescriptive easement out of that. So, so if we look at the driveway example, that's a shared use. And it's, it's more likely there that there's going to be prescriptive, a prescriptive easement. But with the fence, the actual owner has no use of the property at all. So some cases have just simply stated, it doesn't matter how long that fence was there, no prescriptive easement can uh, come up, can be created uh, with that exclusive use. And this was the situation in a famous case called the Salachi case from 1996. And there the whole backyard had been fenced around and that meant the actual owner had no use of the property whatsoever. And the judge just said, well, no, look, you, you can't, claim this as a prescriptive easement, what your real issue is, is adverse possession. That's the neighbor should be suing for adverse possession, not prescriptive easement. Mm -hmm. And the thing about adverse possession is that you can't, it's, there, it's actually very similar to a prescriptive easement, but there's one thing that's very different, which is in order to claim adverse possession, you have to pay taxes on that property for five years, which of course the neighbors will never do in these cases. So so no prescriptive easement is going to be allowed and no adverse possession is going to be allowed either. And just to clarify the difference or 
aside from the paying taxes, the difference between a prescriptive easement and adverse possession is prescriptive easement is about the right to use the property, whereas adverse possession, you'd have to argue that property belongs to me now, right? That's exactly correct. Yes. So if you claim, if you establish a prescriptive easement, you only establish uh, an easement, which is an over for use of the property, but it doesn't belong to you. Whereas if you're, if you're suing for adverse possession, then what you're claiming is you actually are the owner of the property. Okay. But what if in the meantime, the neighbor who'd been using this property that didn't actually belong to them built a pool or even a house on the fenced area? Doesn't that change things? Uh, yes, that could definitely change things. So a, a judge, you know, while they don't want to just give property to somebody who doesn't belong to, they also don't want to tell someone to tear down their house. So, so if the neighbor has built significant improvements, then a judge may be reluctant to simply order the removal of those improvements because it would be inequitable. And that's, that's the case with the Hirschfield versus Schwartz case from 2001. And, and there, uh, the Schwartzes, they built a pool, they extended this fence down the presumed property line, then they built waterfalls, a koi pond, stone deck, they added a putting green. <laughs> yes. Sounds nice. <laughs> I know. And, and then apparently at some point, a car uh, careened off the road and through their front yard, and the Schwartzes then built a block wall to keep the children mm. safe while playing. Mm. And apparently this, this block wall was exceptionally strong using concrete with rebar, you know. And of course, the reason why we're talking about this is that these improvements were on the Hirschfield's property. Mm-hmm. The Hirschfeld sued and basically demanded that all of this stuff be torn down, but the judge thought it was going to be inequitable to force the removal. So basically, the judge looked at the relative hardships to the Schwartzes, these elaborate improvements, and weighed that against the cost of having them torn down and against the benefits to the Hirschfelds of getting their property back. And so the judge rejected, specifically rejected the Salachi ruling pertaining to exclusive use prescriptive easements. And instead, this judge decided that there would be what we'd call a judicially created equitable easement. Okay. But, but keep in mind that even though the judge ruled in favor of the Schwartzes, they, they still didn't just get the property. It's not their property. No. The judge basically said, number one, they would have to pay the fair market value of this property, which was assessed at $23,000. And that's $23,000 dollars and $2,001. But also um, this easement, right, this equitable easement, right, that was only going to last for as long as the Schwartzes owned the property and lived there. They had to do both. If If they abandoned the property or if they sold it, the easement would terminate. So it's, it's a, it's a real kind of cobbled together, uh, you know, judgment really based upon principles of fairness and equity. Right. But it, in the end, it, it seems pretty fair, a fair and reasonable outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Trying, sure. to, trying to balance what's as fair as can be possible for both sides in that Most situation. Yeah. Just having them tear everything down, that would have been crazy. Mm-hmm. So what about the situation, though, where you have two neighbors and they agree that they want to have a fence and that a fence should be built between their properties, but they're unsure of where the boundary line is, but they agree that it should go, you know, right here where there seems to be a natural kind of a place to put a line. What, what happens in a case like that? Okay, well, this is another 
approach, basically. It's another way of approaching this whole fence, you know, issue. I mean, we, we started we started with, you know, the Salachi case, which is this exclusive use. Judge said you can't create an exclusive use. And then we saw that uh, the Hirschfeld case where the, the judge created this equitable easement. But also a judge could just decide at some point and say, look, this fence that you built, that was an agreed upon boundary. And because it was an agreed upon boundary, then a special rule comes into play. And that's called the, the agreed upon boundary doctrine. So the agreed upon boundary doctrine is this, is this established exception to the general rule that you determine where your property line is by looking at the deed. It's an exception to that. So the basis of this rule is that when owners who are uncertain as to where the, the true position of their boundary is, they can nonetheless agree upon its location and mark it on the ground. They can build something, they can build a fence, and that becomes in law the true property line. So it's mm -hmm. called the agreed upon boundary doctrine. And you see this in some of the cases where they resolve these fence disputes. And that's um, remains so even when one of the parties sells. Yes, that, this, that, that line would, would remain in place. Yes, definitely. That agreed upon boundary is going to limit is going to become the legal limit. So it seems like our takeaway from all of these different cases and, and situations and rules that may or may not apply is that these issues are often not clear. There's not a clear uh, <laughs> rule that you can apply in every single situation. To say the least, I would think so. <laughs> I mean, I mean, somebody calls in, they, you know, with the legal hotline, we get these kinds of questions. And I think, and people rightly so, they want to have a clear answer. They want to know what the answer is. But I think you have, you have to realize that it's pretty much impossible for an attorney on the legal hotline to provide a clear answer given that there are so many ways for a judge to, to go with this type of issue. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Well, now that we're on the subject of fences, um, let's talk about another very common uh, call like in the legal hotline. Um, I actually got two calls on this topic in just the past week, um, which is, let's say you have a shared fence between you and your neighbor's property and it sits on the boundary line. So there's no dispute about that, but now the fence is falling down or it's in really bad shape and you'd like to repair it or maybe even replace it. Does your neighbor, are they required to, to chip in or, or help you with the cost of repairing or replacing that fence? And the answer is yes. All right. They are. Yeah, they are. So there's, there is a law. It's called the, the Good Neighbor Fence Act of 2013. Right. And what that law says is that adjoining landowners shall share equally in the responsibility for maintaining the boundaries and monuments between them. And, and what this law does is it sort of sets up a procedure for essentially forcing the neighbor to pay for repair or maintenance of the fence. You basically send out a letter to the neighbor, you explain what you're proposing, why you're proposing it, whether you need to replace the fence or maintain it, uh, explanation of the various costs. Um, and, and you give the neighbor the opportunity to respond. They might say, well, you're getting most of the benefit of this fence and I only have to pay a third, not a, not a half. You know, it go back, it's a back and forth, but the end result is that the neighbor is then legally bound um, to, to pay that fence. Now, I think the ironic thing about this law is that 
it sort of somehow ultimately in, envisions that if the neighbor doesn't pay, <laughs> you're going to sue that neighbor and get your money. Only a bad neighbor would actually do that. Right. <laughs> good, good point. Is it really a good neighbor law if it just gives you a mechanism to sue <laughs> your neighbor because they owe you money? But oh exactly. Well. I'd imagine your request has to be reasonable. I mean, you can't plan to build golden gates that are going to cost you know millions of dollars and feel that your neighbor has to go in on that yeah there's about there's like like a list of six or seven or eight different little reasons why the neighbor might object in that law and it's actually stated in a letter we we have a letter in our sample letter library for this Mm -hmm. um and so if you ever I, i i think that it might have more use if you have let's say like like a lot of different neighbors and you want to build a single fence, you sort of need agreement from all of them. I think maybe in that circumstance, the, a letter might might be more of a way to negotiate this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if people want to find that letter, it is in the sample letter library in uh, inside of a zip form or your forms library. If you just go to that and you type the word fence into the search bar, it'll come right up. Great. All right, all right let's move on to trees. If a tree is on the property line, who would own it? Um, well, if your tree is on the property line, then both neighbors own it in common. So in order for you to own your own tree exclusively, the trunk of the tree must stand entirely on your property. But if you do own the tree, then you own everything on the tree, the tree, the branches, and the roots. What if the tree... Uh, it's like a fruit tree. Fruit grows on this tree. Do you, is it whoever owns the tree also owns the fruit? Yes. So when you own the tree, you own the branches, you also own the fruit. And that's the case, even if the branches extend over onto the, um, the extend over onto the neighbor's yard. So if my avocado tree has branches that extend into your yard, those avocados are mine. <laughs> and I, can, I, can, I can harvest them, and and basically they remind they remain mine until I until they fall into your yard, and and then you can pick them up. Well, what if I say you can't harvest those avocados that are on the branches on my side of the yard, and I'll just wait until they fall, and then I'll take them all for myself? Well, you can wait until you can wait until they fall. You can do that, but you don't really have the right to refuse me from harvesting them. And in fact, there's, there's a case from 1872 on this exact issue. Um, basically, you had uh, this, it's a New York case, actually, it's not a California case. It's called uh, Hoffman versus Armstrong. And basically, uh, Dr. Hoffman's sister, Dr. Hoffman was the owner of the property. Uh, she was trying to harvest cherries while, while standing on the, on the property or sitting on the fence line, it's not clear from the case, but whether she was standing on the, the property or sitting on the fence line, she was trying to harvest cherries from the tree branches that extended over to Armstrong's property. And Armstrong basically came along and assaulted her. Oh, no. Uh, yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't say exactly what he did, but she, she has suffered injuries. And I, I just assume he knocked her off the fence. Mm. I mean, I guess that's what happened. And they decided against Armstrong basically saying, look, as long as she was on her property or on the fence line, um, she had the right to harvest those cherries. 
So what about the overhanging branches into my yard? Can I cut them back at least? Do I have to go to court and get an order to do that? Um, you do not have to go to court. You can just cut them back. You can cut branches back to the property line, but you must act reasonably and you cannot do it in a way that ends up killing the tree or making the tree so unstable that it has to be removed. So you can, you, and also you have to be careful, you can't cut over the property line. If you cut the tree branches over the property line, that's actually a trespass mm. and, and a damage to the property. So if you did that, yeah. I was just gonna say, isn't that a little contradictory though? Because if those branches with the fruit on them are hanging over onto my side, can't I just cut them off and, and then the fruit would fall to the ground and I can have it? You could do that. Dana so, found a loophole. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's a one-time loophole. Right, because so now the branches you, are gone. Sure, the branches are now gone. You're, you're sort of killing the golden goose right there. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, maybe, maybe you can use the threat of cutting down the branches as a way to negotiate something with the, with the, uh, the neighbor. Right. But the biggest, the biggest takeaway from that last point is that you cannot cut beyond your property line or they can sue you for damages. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have the right to cut back the branches that are hanging on to my side of the property. Um, since my neighbor is the owner of the tree, can I recover the cost? that I spent of cutting back those branches? No, I mean, in general, the answer is no. Um, you, can cut the, you can cut the back the branches uh, and, and what has been ruled on time and time again is that cutting back the branches is deemed a sufficient remedy. So that's all you can do. It would have to be a fairly extreme case uh, where you could actually claim damages, the cost of cutting back the branches, but you wouldn't even do that. What you would do is you would sue for abatement and force the owner to do that and claim other damages. So in an extreme case, like the branches fell onto the roof, that's, that happens mm -hmm. and damaged the structure. In that circumstance, you would basically be able to sue for abatement and damages. But in the normal circumstance, no, you just cut back the branches. All right. So if I do cut back the branches and I accidentally go over the boundary line, then what could I be sued for? Um, a lot. <laughs> All right. Bad idea. <laughs> so there's actually a fairly recent case that that looks very carefully at this issue. It's uh, Roni versus Costa from 2012. And in that case, Costa was trying to clear space in his backyard for his outdoor pizza oven. He was going to build an outdoor pizza oven. Sounds pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, he hired a day laborer who was not licensed to trim back some Monterey cypress trees. And these trees, if you, I looked them up online, they have a kind of a scraggly appearance, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in my opinion, they're not the prettiest trees. Anyway, this guy went ahead, cut back the trees, but he not only trimmed the limbs overhanging his property, but he lopped off portions of the cypress that were solely on Roni's property, the neighbor's property. And that's a trespass and a damage to property. So it went to trial um, and, and he was awarded 22,000 in actual damages, which was then doubled because you typically get double damages for trespass that injures. It's even possible that you can get triple damages if trespass is willful. Wow, that's 
pretty high. How are the damages calculated? How are they calculated in that case? So damages are, are, seems like another question, which is simple. Like, what are the damages? Oh, they're X. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) this case shows that they're far from simple. And so that makes it a, a kind of interesting case for us lawyers, because it goes through a lot of different ways of of figuring it out, um, and so so you know basically the, the had expert witnesses testify under various theories as to what the damages were. The expert for Roni, that's the guy who owned the tree, said a replacement tree would cost. He started with well, this replacement tree is going to cost twenty one thousand, and then he added the cost of tree removal, stump grinding, planting, irrigation, ten years of maintenance, and arrived at a unfactored value of 38,000. And then, and then he did some type of compounding based on the fact that it would take 10 years for the tree to grow into the tree that was damaged, total $60,000. So that was, that was what the plaintiff was demanding. But the defendant came back, said, no, 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 no. This is, this is ridiculous. The total damage here is only 7,500, which would be the quote market value approach or the diminution of value that so even if that value so basically i guess you look at the value of the property before the tree and after the tree was damaged that's your diminution of value and that was only 7500 what the judge decided was was sort of in the middle so what the judge did in this case is he took the diminution of market value and assessed that basically at the at the value that the defendants were claiming $7500 but then the judge added $15,000 essentially uh, for loss of aesthetic value. Um, the fact that the trees are now really ugly and they provide less shade. So that totaled 22,500 and he doubled that to get to 45,000. And that was the judgment. Mm-hmm. So, so cutting back the trees using this day labor turned out to be incredibly expensive. Probably would have been a better deal to maybe hire a, a professional. Maybe that would have cost like a thousand dollars, but not you know forty five thousand dollars in the end. So, would you say it's a good idea for um, oh. anyone considering cutting back tree branches to consult a professional? Maybe bring in an arborist. Yes, absolutely. So you you certainly you certainly want to bring in the arborists, and you'd want to do that whether it's branches or roots, really. I was going to say, considering how complicated all of this is dealing with the branches of the tree, I'm almost afraid to ask, what if you have a, what if you have a roots issue and there's some, your neighbor's tree roots are coming onto your property? Right. They come right. up, you see that in driveways, they're breaking up the yeah, or under a fence. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the roots, basically the rules are about the same uh, as with the branches, but there's a little bit of difference. And with the branches, you basically have an automatic right to cut them back uh, to the tree line. With roots, you, you're you only really supposed to do that um, if the roots have, quote, caused damage. So some, some courts have decided that. But I think the practical result is that when you're cutting back roots, you should first consider whether there are other, whether there are other options besides just simply severing the roots. Uh, if, you, if you think that cutting back the roots is going to really damage the tree, then you, you might not do it. Or you certainly, again, you'd want to consult with a professional arborist. Right, and also consulting with the neighbor is probably a really good idea because if you guys can agree together on what you do, then you can avoid a lot of the 
you know, yes. legal problems later. <laughs> right? that, that's also a very good idea. Probably that's probably first. the best idea. <laughs> start, start there. All right. Well, let's move on to nuisances, neighborhood nuisances. This is always a very interesting and fun-filled question on the hotline because neighbors do such different and extremely exciting things at times. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what types of things are considered neighborhood nuisances? Well, uh, you know, basically any anything which is annoying can be a neighborhood nuisance. Like, uh, you know, some some cities have barking dog laws. Mm -hmm. It's actually a criminal offense. If you're if this dog is barking, you can't control. So that's clearly can be a nuisance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and even arguing, uh, arguing couples can certainly be be a nuisance. But there is a case actually, which talked a bit about the nuisances. And that's the Alexander McKnight case. And that in that situation, you have the McKnights, and they were doing all sorts of weird stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think the main thing they were doing is they were operating a tree trimming business from their house, which is those things are insane. Yeah. Um, and uh, a tree chipper, that is, it was a tree oh. chipper that they were operating. Mm -hmm. And then um, they all, they did other stuff. They had late night basketball games. They parked too many cars. They even poured motor oil on the roof. Um, <laughs> they were doing every why. noisy thing you can imagine, basically. But all of that is basically a nuisance. Mm -hmm. and, and would, would certainly be disclosed. Right, but even things like um, someone, your neighbor smoking, say, near your fence and it consistently comes over the backyard, that, that too could be included, right? That would, I think that should be disclosed. I mean, that, that would certainly annoy me. I mean, yeah, if you have to smell that kind of smoke yeah. day in and day out. Might... So, so what options do you have if you have bad neighbors like that who are doing all these crazy things well i mean move that's one thing you can do. <laughs> sure. um but i mean you know the in this alexander and mcknight case they went to court and got an injunction against the mcknights basically stop i mean is that really going to affect somebody it's who knows it's very difficult to you know stop people from doing mm. what they're doing Mm -hmm. What if you go ahead and obtain an order that legally prohibits a nuisance and then you sell the property? Do you have to disclose that and the previous bad conduct of the neighbors? Absolutely. So, so just obtaining the order, um, issuing an injunction against the neighbor's bad behavior, that is in no way the same as completely stopping that bad behavior. No, it's absolutely something that would be disclosed. It would be, and it'd be disclosed on the TDS. Right. And in the event you don't go and get a legal order, but you have this ongoing problem and maybe you spoke to the neighbors and they've quieted down, you know, it seems to have stopped for the moment. <laughs> That's still a disclosable event or? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would think so whether or not, because, you know, the, the fact that it, it was occurring in the past is in my my opinion something which should be disclosed. I don't know what what do you think? Yeah, I mean those loud parties might start again. And you can say yeah. that they used to have loud parties and they seem mm -hmm. to have stopped. And that would be the best way to disclose it in my opinion. Yeah. Right. I totally agree. So this is a good time to transition to discussing disclosures more in general. So we've been talking about easements and neighbor disputes about fences and trees and noise. 
Um, I'm going to throw a real easy question at you. Uh, should, <laughs> okay. should all of these issues be disclosed when the property sold? Um, that is an easy question. Yes, <laughs> they should. Disclose, <laughs> Some people think, well, I only disclose if things, if they're a material fact. And um, sure, yes, you would disclose the items which are material fact and when in doubt, disclose. But you don't even have to involve yourself with that kind of thought process because both the, the TDS and the accompanying SPQ, which is a required disclosure in our, in, in our contracts whenever a TDS is delivered, both the TDS and the SPQ have very specific questions which require the seller to answer these types of issues in detail. And they just, they go, they're fairly involved. And so um, if we look at the TDS, there's going to be a question about, um, are you aware of any shared uses of the property that you have with the neighbors? That's one of the questions. And then there's a second question on the TDS, which asks about any neighborhood nuisances. So everything we just talked about in terms of noisy neighbors, that would have to be disclosed. Right. And then if we... And then if we look at the SPQ, um, that also has pointed question. Number 12 on page three, it says, you know, if seller, are you aware of any boundaries, access and property use by others? And it specifically says easements, encroachments, boundary disputes. And that's basically everything we talked about um, in the first part of this podcast. And then down below, also on page Three, number 16, seller, are you aware of neighborhood noise, nuisance or other problems from sources? And it goes on this kind of elaborate laundry list of the various things that the... So you don't have to even think about whether or not these rise to the level of material fact because the questions have to be answered directly on both the TDS and the SPQ. And what if the agent notices certain things that aren't on the SPQ and the TDS that are clearly nuisances or problems on the property when they when they go through to do perhaps their audit or whatnot? Well, I mean, hopefully the seller will disclose these items, but that does bring us back to an, an old rule, which is the, the duty of the agent to disclose material facts is an independent duty. It's independent of what the seller knows or what the seller has has disclosed. So if the agent knows something which the seller doesn't know or which the seller is not disclosing themselves, then that agent has a duty to disclose it. So, I mean, I, th I think it, it's best to get the seller to disclose these items uh, directly, but yeah, it is a big problem where, where the seller's not is, is intentionally not disclosing something right. and the agent has this obligation to do so. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so you know we talked about seller's obligation to disclose and also agent's obligation to disclose. Um, but what if there? So what if one of these issues exists? Like for example, the neighbor's claiming the right to use a shared driveway, um, and the owner there's a dispute ongoing with that. Um, what should the agent do to try to, or should the agent do anything to try to fix that prior to closing? A lot of people call us on the hotline and say, you know, oh, there's a neighbor, a fight with the neighbor. How do we fix this? We want to resolve this before we sell. Is there anything yeah. the agent can or should do in that situation? 
So that's the first impulse of a lot of agents is basically to resolve, resolve this problem. And in general, that's probably, my feeling is that's not a, a good approach because number one, you don't know if the issue is resolvable at all. It might require going to court. And, and two, what it's probably gonna end up doing really, it's going to bog down the transaction um, because it will, it's inevitably, if it could be resolved, it's going to take a lot longer to resolve it. And, and plus, to resolve it, you probably need to bring in an attorney at some point. I mean, you certainly need to do that to resolve an, an easement issue. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So I'd say the, the, the one thing that no matter what that an agent should absolutely not do is write, write any type of resolution into the purchase agreement as somehow a, a burden on the, on the seller, especially mm -hmm. as a condition of closing. I mean, that in my mind, that would be a huge problem. Right. And I definitely have encountered uh, sellers and agents who, who want to do that. They want to encourage a sale by saying, oh, well, but we'll, we'll put in there that this will be resolved prior to closing. And like you said, there's just, there's just too many uncertainties, right? <laughs> too exactly. many variables. Dealing with a third party right. that is not a party to the contract who has made no such agreement. And mm -hmm. that's impossible to say that. Change their mind at any time. Yeah. You're also giving that neighbor an extraordinary amount of leverage over your True. Group. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. They really have all the leverage over the seller at that point. All right. So a seller can volunteer to attempt to resolve the issue or the buyer simply has to take the burden of that issue, you know, with the sale as is possible. It, it, yes, it's, you exactly. disclose the issue, but our contracts are as is mm -hmm. and as is, as is includes any ongoing dispute that you might have with a neighbor right. so that you're buying the property and that's, that's how you're getting it. Part of as is. Okay. So was there any, other comment that you'd like to make, Robert, before closing out? Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I think yeah. we okay. went over. I think we covered all the all the big questions. Well, it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate your returning to talk to us about this <laughs> yes. very important issue. I think members will be very excited to hear this particular episode because we get a lot of calls on this. Yeah, it's a fun one. I, yeah. I like these kinds of questions. Yeah. Thank you so much, Robert. And uh, we won't wait pleasure. another three years for having you back on again. We'll have you on again <laughs> sooner than that. Okay. Oh, great. Can't wait. All right. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters podcast. Thanks again to Robert for joining us. And thanks as always to all of you for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to give us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us anytime at legalpodcast at car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. 
Our other informational and educational materials can be found at car.org under the risk management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. Talk to you next month.